This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Happy 2022, everybody. I am sitting here with Milo on my lap. Is that right, honey? Yeah. Say Happy New Year. Happy New Year. There you go. It is January 4th. (laughs) So today's episode, I came into my office to do this by myself and he followed me in. I also have my Invisalign in. So if I sound funny, that is why. I have had an interest in gut health lately because of constipation issues and just like overall immunity energy, digestion, it goes on and on. It always seems to be related to gut health. Also, my dermatitis that I had develop in the summer, I have a feeling it all has to do with like inflammation and my gut. So in this episode, I am talking with Ara Katz. She is one of the co-founders of Seed. She tells us all about the human microbiome, what a microbiome does. (laughs) I'm sitting here covering Milo's mouth. (laughs) What happens when our microbiomes are out of whack? Why pets are good for our microbiome? So if you have pets and a baby and your pets are annoying you, at least you can know that they are good for your microbiome. We talk about what a probiotic is and are all probiotics created equally. She also explains why it's important to maintain a healthy balance of bacteria in our bodies. Without further ado, Happy New Year, everybody. And let's welcome Ara Katz to the mom room. First question which is probably the most general question. And we were just talking before, like how scientific should you get into the answers? And I suggested like as if you're speaking to the general public. So the first question that will help with the rest of the information in the episode is what is the microbiome? And my question is, because I feel like nowadays you hear a lot about gut health. Like are those things the same? It's a great question. And at Seed, we love starting off with like definitions because you're right. Then you have like a shared language and shared understanding and it makes the whole conversation make a lot more sense. What you just asked is really one of the most important distinctions because I think most people think that the microbiome is just gut health. And the reason that that is the case is A, that's certainly where a lot of the research in microbiome started. But when you hear the definition of the microbiome, you'll hear that it's kind of much more than that. And so the microbiome in the, in the most simple definition is the community of microbes that live on, in, and around your body. And 
just to put it in like perspective in terms of why it's so important and how many there there are. Of course, you cannot see them with the human eye, although they are responsible for so many critical functions in our bodies. There's trillions. So just bacteria alone, there's about 38 trillion. All microbes at the last most recent count, there's a paper that it believes that there's about 50% of your of the cells in your body are not human, which means they are microbes. So the microbes and the microbiome, so the microbiome, of course, as I said, lives it's the community of microbes in, on, and around your body. There's the gut, and the reason that people just associate microbiome and gut health is because it is the most dense ecosystem of microbes in the body, and where the where a large majority of them reside. Also, the second most diverse microbiome of the body is the mouth. There's about 700 different species of microbes that live in our oral microbiome. And each microbiome is so distinct from each other. Different microbes, very similar to like ecosystems in the earth. So like a rainforest is different than the floor of the ocean, which is different than a shallow pond, which is different than the desert. And so it's really interesting because the vaginal microbiome actually very distinctly is not diverse, which is protective for women and for women's health and for, for other reasons. And so different microbiomes of the body, the nasal microbiome, the skin microbiome, the optical microbiome, there are many, all co- they, these microbes co-evolve with us, but to create very different ecosystems that serve very different functions across the body. So my question, just after hearing that explanation is, are they connected Like the microbiome in my sinuses, I'm just thinking of this because I have such shitty sinuses. Like, would that be connected to like the microbiome in my gut, let's say, or are they just completely separate on their own? There are some species and even some strains. If you go back to sixth grade biology, (laughs) remembering the kingdom and phyla and the taxonomic structure of, of life that certainly are redundant amongst some microbiomes. In presence of pathology, sometimes they are when they're not supposed to be. But there are really interesting crosstalk between microbes and also between microbes and other human parts of your body. So for example, the oral microbiome, if you can imagine how much there's a lot of microbes in saliva, of course, microbes are a big part of digestion. So there's kind of like this notion, you know, of course, the the digestion starts in the mouth. And so of course, then Some of those microbes are swallowed and then travel through the GI tract. And so there's all kinds of just literal interactions, like physical interaction, like they actually come in contact with one another. And then there's really interesting crosstalk on what they call different axes. So for example, you may have heard of like the gut-skin axis. So the gut and the skin have different signaling and different pathways. For example, there are really certain very specific conditions that are the result of like an inflammatory response that the microbes in your gut can regulate or modulate. The gut-brain axis is another great example where there's crosstalk both between microbes and human cells on this kind of open like open line as if they have a phone line open all, all, all day to one another that has impact on everything from, you know, we're, we're learning more and more about certainly mood and anxiety and other pathologies and neuropsychiatric conditions, as well as just things like satiety of whether or not you're full. And those, and that, and so there's a lot of crosstalk there, a little less so when it comes to ecosystems like the gut and the vaginal microbiome. 
as an example. Some scientists suggest specific ways that maybe there's some interaction there. And, and there's actually a really large, big New York Times article coming out soon on whether or not a vaginal, pro- a orally consumed probiotic could even impact your vaginal microbiome, which our, our belief is t- to date is that it, c- it couldn't. And so it's really interesting. And so then there's really interesting things like the gut-liver axis. So microbes being responsible for the regulation of circulating cholesterol, for example, as one other mechanism. And I would also say that this research is really unfolding. The other thing is that it really depends on what part of life you're talking about. Because, for example, at birth, if it's a vaginal birth, there is exposure to fecal microbes for every mother that is listening. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, vaginal microbes and the mother's skin microbes. And so those three are the most distinct microbes that are found in the baby's gut early on prior to exposure to other kinds of microbes. So the microbes from a mother's poop, from her vagina, and from her skin are really the microbes that you see very early in an infant infant's development of a microbiome. And then of course, if they're exposed to other things, if there's breastfeeding, depending on the nutrient source, depending on environment, pets, who else they come in contact with, other skin, brothers, sisters, home, all these aspects that then continue to then diversify those early microbes. But it's it really depends a little bit on what life stage you're, you're talking about, but there's incredible interactions amongst them throughout the body. I was just reading something or watching something And they were talking about how if a baby is born via C-section, they're starting to like wipe the vaginal area of the mom and put it on the baby. And I was like, this is fascinating, but it makes sense. It's interesting. One of our scientists, Maria Dominguez-Bello, she's a phenomenal scientist out of, she's now out of, she was at um, NYU. She's now at Rutgers University. She is one of the early purveyors of what they call vaginal swabbing which is what we said, which is that if a a baby is born in C-section, they're taking microbes from the vagina, they're swabbing it all over the child with the hope that, and the belief that you could potentially replicate some of the vaginal microbial exposure that would have happened during a vaginal birth. It's interesting because the FDA has given them a tremendous amount of problem about moving that forward into some sort of procedure that would be kind of normalized for C-section. So that's kind of like still TBD, how applicable it's going to be. But what's really interesting, even in addition to that, is that because I think a lot of women who had C-sections and start to hear about microbiome research and breastfeeding especially start to feel some kind of like shame around having a C-section. But actually it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot of research to suggest that in the presence of breastfeeding, and non-exposure to antibiotics, so a child not having antibiotics in about the first 18 months of life, and, if, and you know some other kind of like healthy health factors and lifestyle factors, they start to see a convergence of the microbiome of a vaginally born child and a C-section child, so that they do actually start to have very similar microbial signatures in the presence of breastfeeding and lack of anti- and, and not having it being administered antibiotics. So it's, it, it's interesting and also, you know, for anyone who's saying, well, what if I can't breastfeed? You know, there are so many, there's a lot of research happening now and a lot of new products now that are starting to look at how you can add the specific HMOs, which are the, you know, the carbohydrates that are actually not for the human baby. About a third of the carbohydrates in breast milk are not for the human part of a baby. They are literally just food for the microbes 
that are developing in your infant's gut, which is like mind blowing. If you think about how evolution, how we, how we evolved for that to have that kind of circularity, which is extraordinary. And so because the nutritional profile and the microbial profile of breast milk is changing, there's a lot of interesting supplementation, the addition of very specific microbes, the addition of these sugars, these, these carbohydrates, these H, what they call HMOs. And so it'll be interesting too to see while that early research I mentioned was done on breastfeeding, it'll be interesting to see whether or not with some of the newer supplementation and newer approaches to infant nutrition as alternatives to breastfeeding, whether or not you can also start to see that convergence of a vaginal birth versus a C-section birth and whether or not their microbiomes over time will look the same. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like pot stickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. 
Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. So the microbiome, what are the critical functions? So if someone has a really, really healthy, like optimal microbiome, what does that lead to versus someone that has like a less than optimal? I don't know. How would you even frame that? Like a There's a term called dysbiosis. Okay. Dysbiotic, which just means kind of like not in homeostasis. <laughs> when you're talking about the microbiome, I think right now you're asking me about the gut microbiome. And so just to be just to distinct, make sure we're clear because I obviously every microbiome of the body kind of performs different functions. But the gut microbiome, you know, of course most critically is such a huge part of digestion. And so there's, you know, I mean everything from the ability to extract specific compounds from the foods that you're eating and turn them metabolize them into really important other compounds for the body that are critical for everything from being a nutrient source for the cells of your gut wall to really honestly just very basic things like moving literally like triggering the neurotransmitters that trigger motility and actually make you poop and so microbes play like a pretty critical role at almost every part of what makes for healthy digestion which i think is really under, I think now, and particularly because of the prevalence of things like IBS and how many children are starting to suffer, and the numbers for ch- childhood constipation in the US are, are crazy. They're going up very, very quickly. And because of how fast our diet has changed, how much we are not eating enough fiber, and we're not eating a diversity of plants, and of course, so many other processed foods and sugar liquid calorie consumption. There's a lot of, I, I don't want to just say, oh, digestion and move on to the next thing because it, it I can't underscore enough how much and anyone who suffers from any kind of even the slightest GI condition knows how critical digestion is to a healthy functioning human. <laughs> and and also, and, and most importantly, and for really busy moms, this is especially important, like for, for just quality of life and being able to parent and do what you need to do. And so microbes are critical for, for digestion. They play a big role in the management of inflammation. So making sure, and, and this starts at that seeding process that we we talked about with very early in life, which is where the name of our company comes from, where microbes are such a big part of training the body to know whether or not something is friend or foe. You know, is is this good or is it bad? And also how you can identify it and then identify it again. Of course, when that's misfiring, you can see it's correlated with the rise of allergies, asthma, and all kinds of other autoimmune conditions. And then, of course, increasingly starting to look at the gut microbiome and things like autism. And so I think that the inflammation isn't just, yes, they play a very big role in maintaining the integrity of the gut wall. I'm sure many of your, your communities heard of like leaky gut, for example. But So they play a big role in helping signal the tight junction cells, making sure that the cells have a nutrient source, which is what they get, they, they're able to take certain compounds from food and make nutrient sources like butyrate, for example, that help power the the cells that maintain your gut wall. So they play a very 
manual mechanical role in the gut, in the gut barrier. So of course, for anybody, uh, you know, it's like, you don't really want things that you don't want floating out into the bloodstream. And so they play that big role, but then there's other areas where not having to your point about like, what, what does it look like when it's not in, in a healthy state, when it's misfiring or when microbes cannot detect, or there has not been the right microbes or the right diversity or richness of microbes that can really help that ecosystem, like maintain homeostasis, correctly identifying when something again is friend or foe, how to signal the body to respond, what triggers an immune response. And then of course that all has to do, you know, with inflammation. And they can also be a part of, in, in, in the case of a lot of the microbes that we work with in some of our probiotic development, they can even dampen the inflammatory response. So for example, I was mentioning the gut brain axis, uh, sorry, the gut skin axis earlier, where there's specific probiotic strains that can literally dampen that immune response. So like for people for where, where eczema expresses itself or psoriasis or atopic dermatitis, there's microbes that work on that axis that can actually dampen that, that response. So it's really interesting, not just to think about what they do already, but then also how you can use specific microbes to ameliorate or assuage some of those some of those responses, which is really interesting. And that's kind of more the world that we work in. I started to develop dermatitis on my face, never had skin problems in my life. And I started to get that in the summer and everyone's like, go to a dermatologist, like put this cream on it, whatever, whatever. But in my mind, and it's because I have been consuming all this gut health content about like inflammation and all this stuff. I'm like, no, like there's something going on in my body. Like I don't have skin issues. And all of a sudden I'm getting like dermatitis rashes all up my cheeks. And so I started seeing a naturopath and I'm on like probiotics and all these different things to try and help from within. And eventually I stopped putting stuff on my face for a few weeks and it cleared right up. So what are some other common things that people get often? So like you said, eczema, like psoriasis, where we tend to just treat the symptom, but perhaps we should be looking deeper and starting from like within. Honestly, every I mean, everything from, you know, cholesterol to any non-communicable disease like type 2 diabetes, certain aspects of cardiovascular disease, autoimmune conditions, everything from Hashimoto's to IBS, IBD, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, asthma, food allergies of, of all types, but food allergies, I think, particularly. And then, of course, as I said, there's like a lot, I mean, and a lot of that research is early, so I don't want to like over conflate, but certainly there's a lot of correlation that's been articulated. You know, as I, as I mentioned, one of our scientists, who's probably one of the greatest known scientists in the world working in autism, for example, in gut microbiome. And so, and, and then, of course, there's very specific areas and of, of, of cancers and other really serious conditions that in some cases are more rare, in some cases they're increasing, but absolutely, for sure, I think increasingly there's almost very few areas of science and pathology and medicine that are not being explored in their correlation and relationships to the gut microbiome. Like, how do you know if your microbiome has issues? Like, is there a test that you could do or is it like trial and error? You have to start treating it. It's a really great question. Let me say that there's no shortage of people who, who, who won't sell you one. Right. <laughs> and or any number of, of doctors and different modalities, I think, of, of practitioners that 
are happy to do the, the tests. I can tell you that we work with some of the greatest scientists in the field across almost every area of microbiome, and there's a reason that we don't have a test. Look, if you had a parasite and you were sick, and you need to understand there are very specific things that stool is an excellent, excellent indicator of. Things like a parasite, absolutely. There's some other markers in stool, 100%. It is challenging because I think certainly there are some data points, but it's very hard because I don't know one scientist that would say you could look at a stool sample. First of all, stool is often a crude representation of the microbiome. Just because it's in your stool doesn't mean it's in your... There's a, lot, a lot, there's a lot of things that happen. I mean, every time you go to the bathroom, you shed trillions of microbes. So it's a crude biomarker. I think there are some practitioners that will say they see certain patterns with some of their patients, which, you know, look, clinicians see hundreds, hundreds if not thousands of patients a year, and that's, that's valuable, but it hasn't necessarily been like studied more formally, some of that pattern recognition. And what's really hard is that there really is very little consensus as to whether or not one, because there's something in the microbiome and in, in a, by the way, in a lot of ecosystems in nature and the environment called functional redundancy, which means that three strains could all do the same function. And so just saying, oh, you don't have enough of this strain, there's no scientist that I that we know today that would say, oh, you're deficient in this strain and therefore do this. And that's partially because that's not that's not how probiotics work. That's not there's really nothing to suggest today that you could repopulate the gut with that specific strain and then all of a sudden it would do X. Where the world is heading in the future will be probably more looking at the metabolites, so the things that the microbes create, not what's in there, but what they're doing. And that's really where the that's really where the field is moving. So I think people are starting to look at the markers of butyrate, of the short-chain fatty acid. They're starting to look at blood. They're starting to look at the metabolites that are circulating in, in blood serum, for example. And that, I think, is where the field is heading. That being said, I don't want the answer to sound hopeless because just because you can't do a simple test, which, by the way, is true for a lot, a lot of things in health, there are absolutely certain things that can allow you to start to understand what might be underlying it. For example, for you, and you hear this with a lot of people, it's often just the lifestyle, like deductive reasoning through lifestyle changes can be an awesome data set, particularly with diet and nutrition. In your case, literally just stop putting stuff on your face. And in some cases, it's laundry detergent, right? And you, you, I mean, there's so many cases of like infant eczema where it's like literally just stop washing their clothes in what you're washing it in. <laughs> and people will say it goes away. And so I think that, and I think sometimes people really don't realize, for example, the impact of things like alcohol on the microbiome in the gut. Interesting. We have data, we have a, a trial happening now with our current, our, our, our DSO-1, our, our adult symbiotic, looking at the rescue effect of the gut microbiome after alcohol consumption. And we saw impact to the human cell wall, as well as the gut microbiome after just two shots of Grey Goose vodka. Just to show you that like a very small amount of alcohol can greatly impact the gut microbiome. And if you think about it, it's a, obviously alcohol is a very strong antimicrobial, so not, not, not surprising. And I think there's really simple things in diet. The thing about a lot of the ways pe- I think where people go about the diagnoses of these things based on where the field is, is that they end up either doing a lot of things at once and so it's very, and granted, look, when you're, when you're suffering, particularly people have autoimmune conditions where you have a child that's really suffering, you just want to try anything. 
you don't want to put yourself through a science experiment. But the truth is like incremental single changes at a time sometimes can give you a lot of information. And so it's just figuring out what's right, you know, what's right for you. But a lot of times it is lifestyle, it's exercise, it's alcohol, it's food and nutrition. What are you taking in? Are you taking enough food and nutrition? Are you eating the right kind of carbohydrates that microbes can use to proliferate and also create the compounds that we talked about? Are you eating sugar? processed sugar. Like we know that we know, I mean, by the way, even very specific sugar substitutes, things like aspartame also damage the microbiome. And then in the natural world, you know, I think people, you know, chug oregano oil and antimicrobials like they're just because they're natural, they're not strong. But the truth is, is that those are incredibly powerful, non-discriminatory, broad spectrum antimicrobials, which means that they don't, you know, oregano oil doesn't go into your body and says, you know, I'm just going to see which microbes are doing bad stuff. It just wipes, wipes shit out. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and look, even things like antacids and NSAIDs, so like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, huge impact on the gut. So I think, you know, I think there's things that we just kind of pop as a culture. But I think everyone has now come around to knowing that antibiotics are a little challenging for the microbiome. But that doesn't stop the fact that there's 251 million prescriptions written for an antibiotic every single year. And over a hundred million of those are for things that are not bacterial, which means that they're not necessary. Okay. I have lived this because I get chronic sinus infections and I learned a few years ago that like nine out of 10 sinus infections are viral. They're not bacterial. And so I would go and I would get antibiotics and nothing would happen. They would not help at all. And I'd have a sinus infection for weeks. And so now I just stopped going to get antibiotics because I know it's not good to take them regularly and they're not going to help. Yes. Well, yeah, people get into with a number of conditions. I think sinus infections come up quite a bit, actually. There's a lot of really interesting research being done on the nasal microbiome and probiotics that could be sprayed, you know, into the nasal passage. And I think it will be, will be a, a, an evolution of, I think, people who really suffer with sinus infections. And I know a lot of people who do it, it really, it, it's a, I mean, it's also so disruptive to quality of life, but... The really challenging thing is we really are in that. And by the way, I, I don't want anyone to take away or for your child or for your own health. Antibiotics will save your life if given under the right conditions. So like they're one of the greatest inventions like ever, ever made. So like I really don't want it to be um, I'm anti-antibiotics, but I am anti the overprescription of antibiotics. And that really hasn't served us. We can see it now generationally what it has done and the correlations it has to some of these, the, some of the conditions that we talked about. But yes, it, it is it is true. It, it becomes kind of a reflex because I think a lot of people who suffer, like I think I think taking medication also has a its own healing. You want to feel like you're actually like doing something. And I think that's that's part of what medication serves, which, you know, there's probably some placebo effect too, but it is very challenging because people who end up in those cycles, I mean, we see that with urinary tract infections all the time. Although those are bacteria, those are bacterial, but because of it, the the hardest thing of, of what you're experiencing, and well, if it's viral, it's not exactly this, but certainly with UTIs is another great example. The problem with all the overprescription isn't just what it's doing to us; it's making antibiotics not work anymore. It's called antimicrobial resistance, and so what taking all these antibiotics have done is it's allowed our bodies and our microbes to figure out you expose it enough and they're very adaptable. So now, now they know how to evade. 
And so what's happening with antibiotics and what's the scariest thing and, and, you know, organizations like the Gates Foundation, the NIH, I mean, so many of big organizations are now trying to figure out what are we going to do if antibiotics don't work in the future? And so that's the other problem with the overprescription. It's not just what it does to your gut. I mean, that, that in itself can be really upsetting. But if you think about over time, there could be a time where like these ant- antibiotics just don't work anymore. Yeah, that would be a scary time. I hope that's like way ahead in the future. Something that I've heard before and that you mentioned is that like having pets are good for the microbiome. And since having my son, my two dogs are very annoying to me. So maybe we can talk a little bit about why pets are good for the microbiome and then I can, you know, look at them in a different light. Well, you can look at them as like, training wheels for your child for your kids immune systems okay they bring i mean you know it's kind of like kids being outside and being exposed to soil microbes and you know microbes from trees and other you know other kind of environmental and and if, it, if it's helpful helpful to, to you you can look to the studies they've done in like amish populations for example where there's just no presence of allergies because of how in the exposure to so many of the endotoxins and, and various microbes and the proximity to the, that microbial diversity, particularly outside, near crops, near agriculture, like really allow the immune system to be trained early and not identify these things later in life as like antige- as something that should trigger an immune response, right? Which is, of course, where the allergy comes in. And so if you think about dogs, they're out they're licking things, then they're licking you, <laughs> then they're pooping. They're very, you're close to their poop. You're close to their fur. They're picking up microbes on their fur. You know, they have a lot of surface area because they have so much fur. And so they're exposed to microbes. And then their proximity to you is that they're, of course, exposing you in these limited quantities to other types of microbes that you wouldn't otherwise have exposure to that allows your immune system to say, oh, I recognize that microbe, I recognize that microbe, and you're not going to then have a child that's allergic to dogs or allergic to, because they're really able to, as I said, think of them as great training school for your, for your child's immune systems. If that makes them a little less annoying. <laughs> My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. 
This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. So something else that I was thinking about is, especially now, like after the pandemic and with COVID, people have a tendency to just disinfect absolutely everything in their house, like all the surfaces and, well, everything in the car, our hands constantly. Like, what would your advice be to people with regard to that? It's a question that I get asked by parents all the time. I think there's the other part of that question I get asked a lot is like, oh my gosh, did like my child's immune system really suffer these last couple of years because they weren't exposed to all the germs they normally would have been in school? You know, everything is relative, right? Like, you know, I, I think, yes, there's probably been far more exposure to antimicrobials and disinfectant and, and th- than there would have been without COVID. For people who are worried about the hand-washing the palm microbiome is not very diverse. <laughs> it certainly doesn't look like what the skin microbiome on your face looks like. And so, and you know, you have to remember like what, when hygiene was brought into surgery at the turn, I guess it was probably the turn, turn of the I think 20th century. I mean, you save people's lives. A lot of people used to die in surgery, very simply because people didn't have good hand-washing hygiene. So I think like, yes, I am sure that there's some impact of being more exposed to antimicrobials, having a little less exposure to all the germs you would have had in school otherwise, probably changes in diet and certainly like anxiety, stress. I mean, so many things that contributed to over this last couple of years. Everybody, of course, had such different experiences during this last period of time. But we are resilient and we are very adaptable, as we have all seen. I think that when you're raising a child, you're not just raising a child, but you're raising... the choices that you make are not just just for your child. Every time you make a choice for your child, you're making a choice for the community. You're making a choice for other children's families. You're making a choice for the environment. And sometimes really directly and sometimes less directly. And I think that absolutely, like I, I think in a perfect world, this wouldn't have existed because it wouldn't have had the conditions to exist. But as a response to it, I think the notion of inserting hygiene in the face of a pandemic that has killed 5 million plus people as a way of showing our accountability to others, as a way of understanding that hands, particularly with children and like surfaces in classrooms do spread. There's, there's studies where they'll see a, a, one bacteria can, take, can be on every surface of a classroom within five hours. Wow. Literally, it's, it's extraordinary just to understand how things can, how they, how it can spread everywhere. And so, yes, I, I am sure that there is some impact 
that we will come to know, and there's a lot of longitudinal studies, but that wouldn't usurp to me the accountability that we have right now to keeping one another healthy until that we've gotten to this next phase of really understanding how really where, where this is heading post-vaccine, post-various mandates that are going to be in place. But absolutely, I think, and, and, and look, I think there's, there's also, we've never had lower flu rates. I absolutely understand the concern. I look, I share the concern. I have a, I have a five-year-old. Like I, I, it was, it's heartbreaking every time I spray his hand, you know, I know that I'm not just doing it for him. And I know there's somebody that's an auto, autoimmune compromised. There's an elderly person. There's someone who, for whatever reason, cannot get vaccinated for whom is, who is still at risk in some ways. And I feel okay with that trade-off. I wanted to ask you, so you are the co-founder of Seed, beautiful packaging. Like I was on the website. I was like, this is beautiful. What is it like the branding of the products? But that's not important. Can you tell us a little bit about what Seed is and the products that you have? Probably if anyone hasn't picked up so far, we work in the invisible world of microbes and we mostly work with bacteria. So all of our work is looking at how you can take very specific strains of bacteria and impact human or environmental health. So we have probiotics for humans, we have a probiotic for honeybees, we have a probiotic for coral reefs, soon to have a probiotic or symbiotic for kids launching early next year. And in addition to all of the amazing R&D we do with extraordinary researchers from around the world, we also spend, which is where the design does also come in, I know you said it's not important, but it's a big part of what we think, which is that we also talk a lot about the idea that science isn't finished until it's communicated. And I think that that, whether it's a kid's book, which we just came out with on the microbiome, or beautiful design, or finding a way to get great science in, the, in this world of the microbiome to people in ways that really doesn't feel the way science typically feels to people, which can really feel very cold or too clinical or too complicated. And so I think we're always trying to find ways to use beauty and art and design and content and language to be able to communicate this extraordinary world of the microbiome and, and how big of a role it plays in our health, why it's so important, and then also how you can use some of these microbes to really make an impact in your own life and, of course, in some of the big environmental conditions that we, that we work on. And so that's what we get to do every day. Yeah, I love it. And it's true. It's, it's one thing to have the scientists understand the science but it's translating that to the general public and making it available for people to, you know, digest and understand. So before we talk about the kids book, which is so cute, I thought you could just briefly explain what a probiotic is and what it does for us when we take it. Like, should everyone be taking a probiotic? Yes. I mean, it's a great question. I think, let me clear up what it is first, because it answers all the questions that you asked after. So a probiotic, very simple, there's a very clear scientific definition. In the United States, the term is not regulated, which means that why if any of you would like to go on Amazon right now and do an exercise, you can find probiotic pillowcases, probiotic tortilla chips, probiotic chocolate bars, and probiotic house cleaning products. That would not be possible in the EU, in Japan, and in other places in the world where they have a lot more, I think, respect for the scientific definition of what a probiotic actually is. And our chief scientist actually authored the definition for the WHO and the UN. And we've written papers about how to steward that definition because it is so important that people 
know what it really is because it's they're going to play such bigger roles, kind of what we were talking about earlier. Probiotics are going to be such a more meaningful part of not just like preventive health and self-care and wellness, but also the treatment of disease and conditions in the future. So it's important that the word does not feel like a pillowcase. <laughs> um, so the term, the scientific definition is a probiotic is a live microorganism when administered in an adequate dose. So live means the microbe is able to be kept alive. Administered in an adequate dose means it was a dose that was derived through human clinical research to confer a health benefit on the host. Now the host could be a honeybee, it could be a human, or it could be a coral reef, but it's there's a host. And that means, and it was measured with very specific biomarkers. In human, it means human clinical trials for the most part, although there's new models emerging where you can actually demonstrate with a very specific strain. And the live microorganism is important because it means that it's a very specific strain of, of bacteria. Now, saying I take a probiotic is like saying I like books. There's thousands and thousands of strains of bacteria, maybe more. Not being specific is literally like having a dog and not knowing it's a lab. It's like a lot of the products that you see today don't even tell you the strain. They just tell you the species. So the lack of specificity and the lack of understanding has really blown up this space in a way that's like way beyond like what any scientist would say is <laughs> like rational. However, there are certainly areas uh, like, for example, with fermented foods or things like kombucha, while they, there's a lot of misunderstanding that just because something is cultured with a live organism or it's fermented means it's a probiotic and that's not the case. So it's a definition that is very confusing, particularly in the US, but has a very specific understanding in science. And the reason that that's important is because your other questions, which are, should everybody take a probiotic? Well, my answer, my question would be like, well, for what and which strain and why? <laughs> and what was it studied for? And so just like taking a probiotic is like, it's literally like just like, going like it's just opening a menu and saying ordering absolutely anything and just saying well I ate dinner <laughs> and with absolutely no specificity as to what it is and so it's kind of like you wouldn't really just like walk into CVS if you had a headache and just grab something off the shelf and say oh yeah it'll, it's medicine it's like there's very specific strains that have been I mean there's strains that have been studied to dampen the inflammatory response in the skin and then there's strains that have been studied because they make you poop better like Totally, like, to say that they're this, I mean, it's literally the opposite. It's the same. There's strains that have been studied to dampen, like, the asthmatic airway allergy response. That's a probiotic. And then there's strains that are studied because they signal tight junction cells to make your gut barrier more in- have more integrity. Like, saying taking those for the same reason is like, it's like taking an antacid for your headache. It doesn't make sense. And so as a consumer, how do you know? <laughs> well. You're like, good luck. <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to my life. Yeah. I think, you know, right now, how you know because, is that you, there, there's a few places. ISAP, the International Society of Probiotics and Probiotics, has, there's a catalog online which you can look up specific strains and see if they've been studied for something. For most companies, it takes quite a lot of internet sleuthing. The problem is, is that even if they include the strain, you don't know if it's in the dosage that was derived from the clinical study because it's more expensive to put the right dosage in. I can tell you for sure that most prebiotics that are that exist in other in products are not in the right clinical dosage. 
that they were studied in to have an effect on the human body. And there's so many loopholes because, as I said, it's just a very unregulated space. So the shitty answer is you need to find brands that you trust, which is, of course, a big part of why we started Seed. You know, that's such a, like, an important part of why, you know, we created what we did, but why we've created so much transparency and certainly why we focus on so much education in the space. And so that, you know, I wish I had a really good answer, but I would also say, you know, look, moms are really good. They have great bullshit radar. You can look at a company and I think you can start to get a sense of, does this feel right? Does this not feel right? Is there transparency? Can I find the clinical research? Does this company even do clinical research? It is challenging. I would say looking at least at knowing that they've mentioned the strains is very important, but it is a challenging landscape in the U.S. for sure. And one that I would say just to really try and do your homework because you are putting bacteria in your body, your infant's body, or your child's body. And that's not something that you should do lightly. (laughs) It's an important thing to get right, which is, of course, a big part of why we started SEED and, and a lot of the you know, both education, but the standards that we've created around testing and, and quality control and clinical research for this reason. Well, to end, I thought you could tell us about the book that you came out with because it's about the microbiome. It's for kids. It looks super cute. And so what was your goal in writing this book and where can people find it? Well, you can find it at c.com slash a kid's book about and actually, if you want to earn a credit towards, towards purchasing the book, you go through this like little learning experience that we created and you can kind of get a credit towards it. We're really obviously incredibly excited. We've had kids from all over the country, like sending in little videos saying, I'm a super organism or talking about the microbiome. And I have parents who tell me now that their kids are like, eating vegetables because they're like, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for your microbiome, my microbiome, or I'm doing it for my And So, you know, in a lot of ways, I think mission accomplished. I think we're really excited to be able to bring a concept that I think a lot of people would think is too complex for kids because they even feel it's too complex for them. And we've been so excited to see the way they pick up on this, on this new world. And we, we kind of try and turn it into a superpower, you know? So like, this whole invisible world that exists inside you, that if you help them, they can help you and make sure you're really big and strong and healthy. So it's been really fun and obviously came out of a lot of conversations with my son over the years. So definitely a bucket list experience to be able to dedicate a kid's book to my my son. Totally. And I can see where kids would be excited about that. Like, you know, thinking that they're so special. So to end, I thought you could just tell us where can people find more information about Seed, the website, and also on social media. And then I will put all the links in the episode notes. You can find more about Seed at Seed.com. We're at Seed on Instagram, which if you would like a daily dose of really fun science translation and all things microbiome, please check us out. And uh, the book, as I said, is Seed.com slash a kid's book about Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Super informative. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for all your awesome questions. Thank you.